Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. And let's pray while you're turning there. Lord Jesus, we love you. We love your word. Lord, your word transforms our lives. And we pray, Lord, that you would transform our lives tonight through the reading and studying of your word, Lord. We have come expectant. Our hearts have come anticipating that you will speak to our hearts and minister to us right where we're at. Lord, our, our, our hearts are, are, are soil that is soft and, and ready to have your seeds sown into it, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts. We would be more in love with you when we walked out than when we walked in. Thank you, Father, for this time. We commit it to you, and it's in your name we pray. And we all said, amen. amen. I heard a story about a king and a friend. These guys grew up together. They were in the crib together. And they did everything together. And the king's friend had a bad habit. Well, the king didn't like his bad habit. And the king uh, would you know, get irritated every time his friend would do this. Because anytime something went wrong, the kid, his friend, would say, it is good. It's good. It's good. No matter how bad it was, no matter what was happening, it's good. It's good. And this really annoyed the king. This friend also was in charge of helping making sure that his rifles were all in working order. And so one day they went out to go hunting, and the king uh, was there, and he says, hand me my rifle, and he's going to shoot his prey, whatever it happened to be. And the gun malfunctioned, and it actually blew off his thumb. And the friend was wrapping up his hand and getting ready to take him back into the, into the village, and he says, it is good, it is good. <laughs> and the king is like, okay, that's enough of this, it is good. I'm throwing you in prison. And he threw him in prison. You know, he's the king, he can do whatever he wants. You're in prison, I'm done with you. I'm done with your it is good thing. And so he's been in there for a year, and the king decides he wants to go hunting again, and the king's going out, and he's, oh, he's looking, oh man, I think I can find some really good prey over there, but that's not the place to be because the cannibals are in that area, and if they catch you in that area, they will take you and obviously have you for dinner. So he went in there, guess what happened? He got caught. He's tied to the stake, and one of the guys who's actually tying him to the stake and putting the wood around notices that he's missing a thumb. And it's superstitious in this tribe. You can't eat anybody who's missing a limb or a part of their body. So they let the guy go. And he's like, whoa, this is great. I can't wait to get back to the, to, to the village and tell my friend in prison, you know, I can't believe it. He gets in prison. He says, they let me go. And this is all this. And this is exciting. And all this stuff is happening. And he goes, man, would you please forgive me? And he just kind of threw himself at his friend and said, man, you were right. It turned out to be good. And uh, he goes, I'm so sorry. I've kept you in here for a year. And he goes, it's okay. It's all good. Well, what do you mean it's all good? I've kept you locked up for a year unnecessary. Well, listen, had I not been locked up, I would have been hunting with you. <laughs> it's all good. I think Paul's going to hit on this theme today. And we're going we're gonna to be in chapter 8, and we're going to start in 17b and pretty much go all the way through to chapter, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'd like to go to chapter 12 or 13 or 14. We're going to go all the way to verse 30. And, uh, but before we do, let's get a running start. As you guys all know, because you've all studied the book of Romans, the main theme of Romans is found in chapter 1, verse 16, and it's, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. For it is the righteousness of God that is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. And so Paul sets the theme right there in chapter 1. And then he goes on to tell us in chapter 3 how horrible we are as human beings. Right? I mean, we're just, just the sinners of the sinners. And he just, just starts off with this worst news ever. 
And that's what we need to hear. We need to hear we're sinners, but we also need to hear what he goes on to say, starting in chapter 3, verse 21, when he says, but now. And the but now there signifies a change. Yes, you are sinners, but now there is a God who loves you and who wants to save you and rescue you. See, that's the, that's the gospel message, amen? And so he goes through this process, and then in chapters 4 and 5, he talks about how Righteousness and justification can be ours through Christ Jesus. Abraham believed and it was accounted to him as righteousness. And then he gets into chapter 6, that great chapter in chapter 6 where he talks about sin. You have been freed, freed from sin. All your sins in Christ, if you've been forgiven in Christ, all your sins are forgiven. Not only are you forgiven of your sins, but you're forgiven and you have the power over sin. You don't have to sin anymore. And then he goes into that great chapter, chapter 7, where he talks about how in Christ we're dead to the law. And then, you know, Paul is trying to work out now this sanctification in his own flesh. And he gets to chapter 7, verse 24, and he says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? You remember how he's just going to things I wish I would do, I don't do, the things I wish I wouldn't do, I do, you know? And I'm trying to be sanctified in the flesh, and I can't do it. And he cries out in 24, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then in chapter 725, he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then he's basically saying Jesus Christ is going to free us and he's going to sanctify us. And that brings us to chapter eight, the chapter that's all about the Holy Spirit's work in and through our lives. And he talks about in 8.1, there is now no condemnations for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful promise, huh? And we're getting a little running start up to verse 17 here. But then he goes on to talk about in verses 3 and 4 why there's no condemnation because Jesus paid it all and all to him we owe. And then he contrasts in verses 5 through 8 the carnal minded person and the spiritually minded person. And then he tells you that if you are in Christ, verses 9 through 11, and the spirit is in you, you have power to live for Jesus. You have power over the flesh. You have power to be his sons and daughters. You have power to call him Abba Father. You have power to be the witness because the Holy Spirit is working in you. You have power and you are a joint heir with Christ and you have power over suffering. And that brings us to our text today. Look at verse 17. We're going to look at three main points today. And here's the first point is creation groans, creation groans. The title of the message, by the way, probably should have given you that right off the bat is from groans to glory, from groans to glory. Verse 17, and if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So the question of suffering is in our text right here, in these verses here. And the question is, why do Christians suffer? Why do Christians suffer? Sadly, there are some Christians who are out there thinking if you're suffering, you're doing something wrong, right? Who sinned, him or his parents? You know, he must have done something wrong because he's, you know, he's in this condition. Christians should never suffer. This prosperity doctrine is saying if you're suffering, you're doing something wrong. Well, that's just not the case. We're going to suffer. We're going to suffer. And I've read out about 15 reasons why. No, I'm just kidding. Only about three or four reasons why Christians suffer. But the first one is, we do sometimes suffer because of our own stubbornness and selfishness and rebellion. That is a fact. Sometimes we're our own worst enemies, right? 
You know, sometimes we create our own weather. Wherever we go, we're like creating our own drama, our own weather. We're like suffering because of our own, our own effects. And so we have to remember that sometimes we do suffer because we are in rebellion to God and God wants to get our attention and he wants to wake us up. And he loves us and he cares for us enough not to allow us to go down a pathway that's going to destroy us or hurt us. And so sometimes because of our stubbornness, we do suffer. But listen, not all suffering is because we are making mistakes or, you know, because we're doing these things or that thing. Sometimes just suffering comes upon us because we live in a fallen world. And that's the second reason we suffer is because God allows trials in our life, right? He allows us to go through trials for whatever reason. Think about Job in the book of Job. You know, Satan and God are having that conversation and Satan's basically telling God, Job's the only reason why he's following you is because you're blessing him. If you stop blessing him, he won't follow you. And, you know, so they make this agreement, well, you can go do everything to him you want, you just can't kill him. And so, wow, we see the suffering that Job went through. And you know what? Job never knew why he was going through that suffering. But he was going through that suffering, not only to purify himself, but to be an example for us that sometimes we're just going to go through it. We're going to go through the fire. Satan's attacking. You know, we're going to have different things happening. We're going to have a, we could be driving as safely as we can be and a car can dart out and smack and right into us. And it's just, it's just going to be the way things are going to be because we live in a fallen world. And we do fall into various trials at time, don't we? And that's why James says in one, uh, chapter one, verse two, my brother encountered all joy. Hold on a second. I don't know about you guys, but how many times when you're suffering, you count it all joy? Raise your hand. Yeah, I didn't think anybody raised their hand. Because no sane Christian wants to suffer. But we can count it all joy. We can count it all joy because we know that God's doing something. And he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have, patience have its perfect work, that you may per- be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So when we do fall into various trials, we know that God's got a perfect plan and he's working it out. He's working it out. And sometimes we suffer because of persecution. You know, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, it says if we desire to live godly, we're going to suffer persecution. We're not greater than our master, are we? They said if they persecuted him, they're going to persecute us. And then sometimes we suffer because we share in the sufferings of others. Suffering watching our friends and our loved ones suffer. So that's some of the reasons why we suffer. But let's look at God's answer as to why suffering and what God does with this suffering. The first thing we want to look at is in suffering, we enter into a special union with Christ. Look at the last part of 17 there. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. So as we're going through whatever sufferings we're going through, remember this and keep the big picture. The big picture is is that we're going through these sufferings and it's all going to work out for the glory of God. Really, as we get to the end of our text today, it's all working out for good. It all depends on how we define good, though. Because if we define it the way we want it, not always the way it was going to work out, right? But if we define good the way God defines it, it's always working out for good. We are sharing in the sufferings of Christ. Look at uh, Philippians 1. It's on the screen It says, for to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but to also suffer for his sake. So when we're going through trials and we're going through sufferings, we got to remember, keep the big picture, we're suffering for his sake. He's doing something in us. 
You know, you're going through the trial, it's like the person who's heating up the gold and he's heating up the gold over and over and over and over again because there's dross in the gold and he needs to get that dross off. And so as he keeps heating, he keeps heating, he keeps scraping. And then he heats some more and he scrapes some more. And then he heaps heating and he scrapes some more. And the dross is, is the stuff that is us. And this guy keeps doesn't doing that, heating the gold until he can see his reflection in the gold. And that's why we go through the fires. And that's why God keeps scraping off the dross in our life so that he can see his face in our life. We suffer for Christ for that. We suffer with Christ for that reason. In Philippians 3.10 it says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. So when we suffer, we've got to see the big picture. It's a privilege to suffer for Jesus no matter what the suffering may be. It is important that we understand that. It's not always easy, is it? But God wants us to keep that big picture that when we are suffering, we're suffering for him. We like Philippians 10 when it says, I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, and do we want to be conformed to his death? Do we want to share in this suffering that he suffered while he was here? Because it's working out for our highest good, I guarantee it. And again, remember some of the reasons why we suffer, as I already mentioned, in John 15, verse 20, it says, hey, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then as I also mentioned, first, uh, 2 Timothy 3.12, if we desire to live godly, we will suffer persecution. I think even more so in the culture we live in today, the potential for this is greater than it's ever been. It is greater than it's ever been. Just making a stand for Christ may cost you your job, may cost you a lot of friends, may cost you family now. 10, 15, 20 years ago, definitely 30, 40 years ago, that was not the case. But we are in a situation where families are fracturing apart because of the sin that's being accepted in the world. And because we'll make a stand and say there's such things as truth, there's such things as righteousness, and there's such things as still sin. There's still sin in this world. And when we say that, boy, the world doesn't want to hear us. And so we've got to be prepared for even more suffering, I think, in the future. Now, let's face it. You and I, I live in El Dorado County. What county is this? Yuba, Yuba County. Still probably extraordinarily conservative, right? <laughs> I mean, so we're insulated. I'm insulated in El Dorado County. It's arguably one of the most conservative counties still left in the state. And, and so we're, you know, we're not experiencing a lot of it maybe like we would be if we were in the Bay Area or in other places in our state. But be prepared, just be prepared knowing that a time is coming that if we are going to profess Christ, we might suffer. We might suffer. Another thing to remember about suffering is that he is with us during the sufferings. As a matter of fact, think of it like this. Remember when Saul had persecuted the church and he was on the road to Damascus to get more Christians and to persecute the church, right? And the bright light shone around him and he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my church? Or why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting people? No, he said, why are you persecuting me? So when we're being persecuted or we're being suffering through this, this trial of persecution, remember this, that they're actually persecuting Christ. They're actually persecuting Christ. He's in the fire with us. Another great example of being in the fire with us, you guys can think of it, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in Daniel 10, right? They refused to bow to the statue of Nebuchadnezzar. They took a stand for righteousness. They took a stand for truth. We're not going to bow our knee to another idol. No way. God is our God. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, if you don't bow, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. 
Whether we live or die, it doesn't matter. We're not bowing to your statue, period. So he heats the fire up seven times hotter. The, the prison guards that throw Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah in are burned up, consumed because of the heat of the fire. And then all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar's looking in and he sees four walking around. And Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are all walking around unbound and everything. And, there's, and, and Nebuchadnezzar cries out, hey, you guys come back out, because he sees four men out there and one's like the son of God. And I can imagine Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah just going, no, why don't you come in? I mean, we're in the fire, we're in the trial, we're right in the heat of it, but who's in the midst of it? And do we not experience Christ when we're going through trials in a richer and deeper way? And sometimes when we're in the middle of the trial, we're like, whoa, this is not good. But then all of a sudden something changes and we realize the presence of Christ like never before. And we almost have this attitude like, if this trial never ends, I'm okay because I am so close to you right now, Jesus, and that's all that matters. And I can see Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah doing something similar like that. No, we don't want to come out. As a matter of fact, I can almost see them saying, and I'm ad-libbing a little bit, so please give me some permission to do so. Jesus, can't we just go with you? Can we just go with you? Do we really have to go back out? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar stinks. I mean, he's a horrible dictator. I mean, he's mean. God's got a plan for Neb. Hold on. So he's in, a, he's in the fire with us. And then the next thing about suffering that we need to remember, it's how we respond to it. How are you responding to the suffering? You see, we're either going to try to break out. You're going to try to run away from your problems. You're going to try to just avoid them. You're going to just try to bury them. You're going to try to break out. You're just going to try. You're not going to accept them. That's the first response, really, is you want to break out. You don't want to accept them. But the result of trying to run from problems is you actually end up growing bitter and you become hateful and you become hard. So there is a process in which God is allowing us to go through these sufferings and allowing us to go through these trials because he is trying to break us down. He is trying to break us in a, in a, in a good way, like David was broken in Psalm 51. He had a broken spirit and a contrite heart. But then the next way that we can respond, which is not good, is we can actually literally break down and we become neurotic. And we become people who are filled with self-pity, withdrawn from society. I, I think I have it on the screen, this Corey Tim Boom quote. If you look at the world, you'll be distressed. Amen? I mean, it's, it's distressing out there. I can't even hardly watch TV anymore. And um, Sunday, I wasn't feeling so good, so we were watching a little uh, TV, and, and uh, one of the old channels had Fathers Knows Best. Anybody remember that show? Um, what a wonderful show. I mean, I think we watched like 15 episodes back to back to back. That had a marathon going. And I was like, man, why can't they just make TV like this today? And then all of a sudden we turn the channel and it comes on to something more modern and we're just like, ah, we can't, we can't see it. We look at the world, we become distressed. If you look within, you look within, you become depressed. You know, we, I know sometimes we have to examine ourselves before the Lord. I get that. That's not what I'm saying here. But so many times, you know, like, especially with psychology, well, we got to go back to when you were three and figure out why you did these things. Uh, you know, the Bible says if you're in Christ, you're a brand new creation. You are born again, okay? And I'm telling you, every time I look within, I do get depressed. But every time I hold up the Word of God and look at the Word of God, my life is renewed, it's transformed, it's encouraged, I'm blessed, right? But when I look within and I start going, oh man, why do I do... 
No, stop looking within and go look up. Look up. Lord, I'm a sinner. I'm wretched. Please forgive me. So if we look at the world, we're distressed. If we look within, we're depressed. But if we look to God, we'll find rest. Look to his word. This word transforms and it renews. And the people who don't want to accept trials and sufferings, they can either break out, break down, or we can break through by the grace of God. And by the grace of God, as we're going through the trials, we, we just recognize that God's hands is in this. And like he says in the Thessalonians, in all things give thanks. In all things? In all things give thanks. For what? This is the will of Christ Jesus for you. So what truffling, suffering, or trials do you find yourself in today? Remember, they're either going to make us bitter or better. They're either going to make us bitter or better. If we look within, we just try to solve it on our own, we're going to become depressed. But God's got a perfect plan. We're going to get to it towards the end of the message. Then we're going to grow and we're going to be better. But remember a few things in suffering. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed. Now, when this was written by Paul, he's not a man who just had no idea what suffering was all about. He wasn't a man who was just sitting at home, you know, in the lazy boy with the soda pop, flipping the channels, you know, watching Major League Baseball with the air conditioner in the summertime, in the heat, in the wintertime. No, he did not live a life like that, did he? No, how many times was he shipwrecked? How many times was he in the deep? By the way, being out in the middle of the ocean, having things bump up against your legs, no way. No thanks. No way. Forget it. I'm not going over there. Lord, if you want me to go over there, I'm going to take the long way around. I, I like being the top of the food chain. I like to be in those places, you know. I know you guys go out and hunt, and you got mountain lions and stuff like that, but you got a weapon, right? You're still the top. But look, he was beaten how many times? How many times, you know, was he arrested? How many times was all this stuff done to him? And so when he writes this, when he says, man, they're just, they're just man, listen, they're not compared to the glory which is coming. And then in 2 Corinthians, he actually says they're light afflictions and they're but for a moment. And they're working out for far more of an exceeding weight of eternal glory. And so Paul's writing this and he's understanding what it's like to suffer. And he's saying they're not to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. You see, suffering is the process through which you and I are being prepared for glory. You know how they chiseled the stones away from the temple, all the rough edges to make sure it would fit right in the spot when they brought it in so they didn't want the noise to be made? You and I, all the rough edges in us are being chipped off. We're becoming more like Christ through these processes of suffering and trials so that when we get to heaven, we just fit right where he wants us to be. We've been left here for two reasons, to be used by God and to grow and to continue to grow through the trials and the sufferings. You know, there's an illustration in the 1976 Olympics in Montreal, a Japanese gymnast by Sun, Sun Fujimoto. He's a gymnast, okay? And so he was out there doing his floor exercise. And when he was out there doing his floor exercise, he actually broke his right knee. But he was a stubborn man. He was a competitive man. I like competition. It's good. It's fun. And he wasn't going to quit. He was going to get on the rings next. And there's, they're going, he's got a broken right knee. There's no way he's ever going to be able to do this. And so he's on that rings. By the way, have you seen that stuff? That's impressive stuff, those guys holding themselves up on these rings and flipping around and all this stuff. I don't know how they do it. 
But this guy, everyone was watching him. There's no way he's going to be able to stick the dismount with a broken right knee. And he does. The miracles are miracles. He's just going through it, going through it. And he just booms. As soon as he jumps off, he lands. It was like there was never a broken knee whatsoever. Later, a reporter asked about that moment, and he replied like this. The pain shot through me like a knife. It brought tears to my eyes. But now I have a gold medal, and the pain is gone. You guys, my precious brothers and sisters, listen, the trials of this world are not to be compared to what's coming. And we can stick the dismount in Christ knowing that he's got a future for us in glory that is not to be compared to this. And by the way, I know some of you younger people may not realize this, but life is going by extraordinarily fast. I mean, it's on light speed. And it's like, boom, next thing you know, we're going to be there. It's not going to be forever. We, you know, when you're younger, you're thinking, well, you know, in 20 or 30 years, like that's forever. I mean, 10 years goes by in a blink now. I remember in high school, I thought the four years in high school were going to just be like, yeah, it's like eternity, right? Now it's been 40 years I've been out of high school. And I'm like, where did it go? So we're almost there. We're almost home. By the way, even if we don't die of natural causes and meet them, I think the rapture's coming soon. At least that's my hope. And I'm looking forward as Paul obviously was as well. All right, verse 19. We'll pick it up a little bit and then we'll get to the the last part of this little section. For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the Son of God. For the creation was subject to fertility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. So let's just get a little context of right here. The creation is groaning. What took place in the garden with Adam and Eve was when they sinned, it not only affected their lives, but remember, it also affected all creation. Everything in creation that when it was created by God was perfect, he said. But when they ate of the fruit and they brought sin not only into their life, but they also affected everything from that point on. Now all of a sudden, Adam is going to go out, to go out there and he's going to have weeds. I mean, I hate weeds. I, I, I should have stock and Roundup. I know maybe somebody had bad ideas about Roundup, but I hate weeds. They're just like, wow, they are a curse. Oh, wait. That's part of the reason why they're called a curse, because that's what took place when Adam and Eve sinned. Women now have pain in childbirth. And so the animal kingdom is now not the same way it was before the fall. Plants are not the same way as they were before the fall. Everything has changed because of the fall of man. And creation is groaning. It is longing for redemption as well. It is longing for redemption as well. Because of the sin of Adam and Eve, this planet is under a curse in regards to the sin nature. And the real truth about the environment is it's not a greenhouse gases. The real truth about the environment is it is sin and rebellion against God. The real problem on earth is not CO2, it is S-I-N. And we are looking for, creation is looking for, for his return. And that's what these verses are talking about when everything is going to be made right again. Remember the cobras, like who wants to play with snakes in the first place? I mean, snakes are right up there with sharks that could eat you in the sea. Forget it. I don't, I mean, even in the millennial kingdom, I'm not going to go and pet a shark. I'm not going to go play with cobras. All right. I'm just, maybe I will. I don't know. But, but look, you see, so the real problem in this planet is the sin. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't be good stewards over the planet. 
Because God gave us the planet to be good stewards over. I mean, he, when, when we drive out of here, when I drive out of here tonight, I'm going to look up at the sunset. And then as I get home, I'm going to see the stars. I mean, he's given us this planet to take care of and to be a good steward over and not to just waste it. We need to protect it and take it and take good care of it. But the real problem is sin. Look at verse 21. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Now, because we're at Calvary Chapel, we believe how this is all going to work is that we have the rapture, and then we have the seven-year tribulation period, which this planet's going to look radically different. And then Christ is going to come back with us, and he's going to usher in his millennial kingdom. And that's what everything is going to be made right. And that's what this, these verses are talking about, is creation wants to, grow, it wants to be made right. Wants to be made right. Listen, we hear these doomsdayers. By the way, that, that gal Greta, whatever her name was, predicted that the earth was going to come to an end uh, two days ago. You know, it was supposed to come to an end on June 21st, and it didn't happen. I'd like to tell them, all you got to do is read the end. It, it, it's really, I mean, not that we should be good stewards. Please don't misunderstand me. Don't send me any emails. Don't, don't complain to Eddie. It says in the end that Jesus Christ is coming back to rule and reign on this planet. It says he's actually going to stand on the Mount of Olives and is going to split. This, there's going to be a world here. We don't have to worry about it falling. I mean, we don't have to worry about it ending. There's going to be a world here. Verse 22, but it does groan, for we know that the whole creation groans with labor pains together until now. And that's why we do have earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and floods and all these things, because it's groaning. It's, it's crying out. It wants to be redeemed. And sometimes when you look out at some of these natural disasters, you're just going, Lord, I mean, just, and you look at the sin that's taking place in the world, and you're just thinking, Lord, this is just too hard for me. I can't bear it anymore. Just come and bring it to an end. But remember the Lord, he's not slack concerning his promise. He's wanting to get every person he can saved before he comes back again. And so the creation is groaning. The creation is groaning. We are groaning through trials, and that's the next point. Believers groan. Look at verse 23. We groan. Um, not only that, but we also have uh, the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting the adoption of the redemption of our body. What does that mean? This is actually a fantastic verse. Not only uh, that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit, verse 23. You know what this means? At the moment of salvation, we receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We receive the Holy Spirit. And a, receiving the Holy Spirit is like a foretaste of what heaven is going to be like. It's going to be like a little foretaste of what heaven's all about. And so right now, our bodies are saying, man, I eagerly am waiting for this final conclusion where this body comes to an end and I can actually be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. No more suffering, no more pain, no more tears, only glory, only praise forever and ever and ever. And by the way, these bodies are wearing out, are they not? They're wearing out. Your young guys don't know, maybe gals and guys don't know about it, but boy, I'll tell you what, it's just harder and harder to stay in shape the older I get. Verse 24. For we were saved in this hope, but this, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But we hope 
for what we do not see. We eagerly wait for it with perseverance. This word perseverance is hupomone in the Greek. It means to remain under all kinds of pressures and stress, to remain under. And the hope that we have is not a hope and that I hope it's going to happen. Like I gave up hope that the Raiders would ever win another Super Bowl again. It is not going to ever happen. But I'll tell you what, this hope that I have in Christ, it's not a hope and I hope it's going to come to pass. It's a hope and I know it's coming to pass. Amen? All right, let's move on because we're running out of time. The Holy Spirit groans, verses 26 through 30. We'll finish out the study here tonight. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. Isn't that great to know? We have the Holy Spirit residing in us, and He is helping us with our weaknesses. The Holy Spirit is working in and through our lives, and He's actually making intercessions, as it goes on to say in verse 26. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so some people have referred to this as maybe the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 14 too, and verse 15, 14 and 15 of 1 Corinthians. But what we need to understand here is the Holy Spirit is making intercession for us. I believe in the gift of tongues. I believe that it is a spiritual gift. Calvary chapels believe that the gifts of the, the Holy Spirit gifts that were started are still in play today. We also see abuse. We see people making mockery out of these gifts. But it's not to, it's not to be, they're not to be taken away. I really, I have a hard time with some of our reformed friends when they try to explain them away. I don't see how they get that with the text. And I've done a deep in-depth study. I don't get it. I still see that they're in play. But um, anyways, the spirit is groaning. I believe in the spiritual gift of tongues. As uh, I'm, I'm sure Pastor Eddie does as well. Maybe not. But it's okay. We don't, just, we don't divide over those issues. Those are not issues that we divide over. The most important thing to remember is verse 27. And now he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So the Holy Spirit knows exactly what we need and when we need it. And he's making intercession before us. Jesus Christ is also at the right hand of the Father doing what? Making intercessions for us. Making intercessions for us. So the Spirit groans as well because He sees we need help and He's praying for us according to the will of God. Now, verse 28. The famous verse in Romans 8, 28. And we know all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. We have to be careful when we read this verse not to become too familiar with it. Because, you know, familiarity can breed contempt. And we can read this and we can go, man, okay, I get it. You know, I got it. And we can just kind of get just kind of in our minds. We're just flippantly going through it. But let's just break it down and make sure that we understand what is being said here. All things are working together for good. There's two words in the Greek for no. And one is gnosko. And that's the knowledge we gain from personal experience. Like, I know the double-doubles at in and out are absolutely amazing. How do I know that? I had one last night after church. My wife picked one up. I went home, and there it was sitting on the table. And it's absolutely delicious. It's the gnosko. I know. I know from personal experience. I know my wife in a gnosko way. I know her personally. The other word is O-I-D-O. 
And it's actually something that we draw from insight or logical conclusion. To see, to know, not necessarily to know by experience, but possess information about. And this is the word that Paul is using here. This second word is in the verb tense and the presence and continuing reality, meaning it's based on a past event. We know as Americans that 240 something years ago, we had a revolutionary war with the Britons, the British people, and we declared independence and we declared our freedom. And you and I are living in that freedom some 240 something years from now, right? From that point, we know it, we're experiencing, but we weren't there to experience what took place, but we're living in the results of what took place. So to know, he's actually saying it points back to a past event. And the past event that this points back to is the cross. Paul says right now and always, we can have absolute confidence in everything working together for good because Jesus has conquered sin and death on the cross. That's why we can say all things are good. And we know all things are good because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Now we have to look at what good means. You know, what is it? (laughs) It's all good. Does Paul really mean all things? Because that can be hard at times, right? I mean, I've struggled when I've had to deal with kids who've been sexually molested and I've had to call CPS. I've struggled with wives coming into my office and seeing them being abused by their husbands. And I'm thinking, Lord, how in the world does this all end up good? And it's hard. And how do you counsel people? And how do you come alongside and and encourage and, and try to strengthen them? It all depends on what our definition of good is. You see, you and I think that good means that we end up in a comfortable place. We win the lotto or my, my illness is healed. But we have to look at good the way God looks at good. We have to be able to focus and look at the way God sees good. We have to see the big picture. You see, when we look to the cross, we see that God loves us so much that there is no length he would not go to to save us from things and, and to make things right again. We see a God who is so wise, he knows exactly what he is doing. We know that. And he is able to defeat everything that would come against us. We see a God who is so great that no matter what the devil and the rebel, uh, rebellious man may do to try to prevent him from doing his work, he can always get around their puny attempts to stop it. And so we can trust God because of the cross, because we are saved, because our souls are in him, And we can say, and we can look back to the cross and we can say, I know, I know that all things are going to work out together for good because of the cross and because of what Jesus Christ has done. And we have to remember, and there's a great illustration about seeing things the way God sees them. There's so many actually throughout the the, the entirety of scripture. But Joseph, Joseph had dreams He shared them with his family. His family became very upset with him and they wanted to get rid of him. Actually, his brothers sold him into slavery. And as Joseph was being taken into slavery at that moment, do you think he's going, oh, I know all things are going to be good. All things are going to work out for good. 
He had no idea of what's going on. He had no idea of what the future had in store. And then he gets to Egypt and he's sold and Potiphar's wife wants to have relations with him and he does the right thing and he stands up and he says, no, I'm not going to do this because I'm not going to do this before God and I'm not going to allow this to happen. And he runs out and he's falsely accused. Do you think as he's falsely accused, he's going, oh, I know that all things are going to work out together for good. No, he's probably thinking, what in the world is happening? I've honored you. I had the dreams. I just shared them. My brothers got mad. Maybe I had a little bit of an attitude. I don't really know what the problem is, but now I'm here and now I'm falsely accused. And now now I'm being thrown in prison. I'm in prison. And these guys have dreams, the butler and the baker. I interpret their dreams. They go, I say, hey, tell the Pharaoh, remember me. He doesn't remember him. And he's going, what in the world is going on? Here I am suffering in this prison and I'm just trying to serve you, Lord. I don't get it. And this, if you say all things are working together for good ending, it's, it's like there's a disconnect. We have no record of him complaining. We have none none. And then finally, the dream is remembered. Pharaoh finds out Joseph becomes number two in all of Egypt. There's a famine in Canaan. His father and his family come down and are reunited. Reunited. He feeds them. A nation is birthed in Egypt. Some 400 years they were birthed in Egypt. Some maybe three or four million people left Egypt in the Exodus all because of Joseph being sold into slavery and he had no idea what was going to happen the moment it happened. And he had to keep his eyes on God. He had to keep his eyes, so to speak, on the cross. He has to do that because if he doesn't, he's going to wither away. Spiritually, he's going to, defeat, he's going to become defeated. You and I have to look to the cross and say, Lord, it doesn't look very good right now. It actually looks pretty bleak. But because of the cross, Lord, I can do this because of you in my life and your prayers, your intercession, you're with me. I don't know how it's all going to end, but I'm going to trust you. Amen? Amen. And then there's some condition that says to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. This promise is to those of us who love God. To those who don't love God, there is no such promise. I feel so bad for these people who are going through these sufferings and they don't know Christ and they have no such thing as everything working together for good. God is using these circumstances to try to draw them to him. But you and I have a special promise because we are in Christ. And then he goes on to say, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren for whom he foreknew he predestined. Now this gets into the weird Calvinism, Arminianism, and I'm just going to give you a brief 40 minute, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just going to give you a brief look. The Calvinists believe that God is all sovereign and he chose you and you didn't get a chance to choose. And the Arminians go, no, 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 wait a second. And they put more emphasis on our, our choosing and our free will and they say the Calvinists are wrong, the Calvinists say the Arminists are wrong, and here's Calvary chapels, we're right in the middle. And we say, yeah, you know, you Calvinist guys, you're right, God is sovereign. And according to Ephesians 1, he, because Jesus stood outside of Jerusalem and he said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but yet you were not willing. And so there is a will to this thing. There's a, cho- a chosen, and then there's an aspect to us having a free will, and I'm not going to try to figure it out. And I don't lose lose a moment of sleep. Somehow God chose me before the foundation of the world. He predestined, he foreknew me, all this stuff. That's a wonderful promise from God, amen? 
but somehow I had a choice to choose him because that's the only way that we can genuinely love him is if we have a choice to say yes. If we're like little robots, like our Calvinist friends are saying, it's irresistible grace. Is that really love? You see, if I created a doll in my image and I pulled a string and each one of it says, I love you, Jeff, you're the best, you're the best. Is that really love? No. But if I put a free will in the doll and the doll turns to me and says, Jeff, I really love you. Oh, that means something, doesn't it? See, Wiersbe says this, I love this quote. I will not rob God of his sovereignty, nor will I, nor man of his free will. I'm not in the, interested in robbing anybody. And that's just how this works. But the bottom line is that so many people get stuck with those first few words in that verse, but forget to talk about being conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many. God wants to conform us to his son. He wants us to look more like Jesus each and every day. He wants us to love like him. He wants us to have his heart. He wants us to see people the way he sees people. He wants us to be compassionate. He wants us to be bold. He wants us to share his truth and love. I don't know about you, but I want to be conformed into his image. And when I say that, I say that knowing, okay, (laughs) that can be a challenge, huh? I'm stepping on the roller coaster, Lord, and I'm going to have to trust you because I know you're going to take me places that I may not like. And then verse 30, moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, he also glorified. So there's a process in which you have some promises there. We've been predestined. We've been called. We've been justified. Justified in a theological term is just as if we've never sinned. And these will also be glorified. We're going we're to be in glory with Christ one day. Listen, Spurgeon said this, it's on the screen, we'll close with this. Did you ever hear a man who got his health by being sick? That is a Christian. He gets, he gets, his, he gets rich by his losses. He raises by his falls. He goes on by being pushed back. He lives by dying. He grows by being diminished. He becomes full by being empty. Well, it is the bad... Well, if that is, excuse me, well, if the bad things work for him so much good, what must his best things do? If we can sing in the dungeon, how sweetly will we sing in heaven? Amen. You see, Miriam played the tambourine on the other side of the Red Sea. What happens if she would have played the tangerine when they thought their backs were against the Red Sea? They had the valley, the mountains on the sides, the, closing them in, and the Egyptian army. You see, that's when she should have played the tambourine too. We've got to learn to play the tambourine when it doesn't look good. We've got to sing like Paul and Silas in the prison. And you know what, guys? The only way we can do this is by a super anointing of the Holy Spirit coming and living in and through us and dying to ourselves. We win by being broken. In Hosea chapter, I believe, 13, you know, he's talking about Israel being like Jacob, and then he says he wrestled with God and he won. He won because he wept. Jacob wept. Jacob wept like, like, like uh, David. I am a broken spirit and a contrite heart before you. What do we need to remember tonight? Answer out loud. Is God good? Yes. That was kind of weak. Is God good? 
is God's love perfect? Yes. Is God all wise, all powerful, and eternal? Yes. Then know this. Whatever we're going through today, he's good, and he's got it, and we can trust him, and we can sleep at night, we can put our head on the pillow, and we can just say, Lord, thank you. As I was coming up here tonight, I was just in a, I put the iPod on listening to praise music. I go, Lord, 57 years, almost 58 I've been on this planet, and I can almost tear up thinking about it. You have been so amazingly good to me. So amazingly good. I've had a lot of you've been amazingly, enormously good. You've been better to me than I deserve. And I can't, I can't praise you enough. My lungs can't praise you enough. My heart can't praise you enough. My mind can't. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And thank you, Lord. We do praise you because you have been good in the storm. And you will be good in the storm. And we know because of the cross that all things are going to work out for good. And one day we're going to stand in glory and we're going to see your face and you're going to wipe away our tears and you're going to say, enter into the joy of your rest and you're going to tell us, well done. And Father, we look forward to that day. But in the meantime, while we're here, Lord, help us to have that victorious heart that you want us to have even in the midst of unbearable trials, Lord, knowing that you've allowed them to come into our life, to chisel and to... And to Make us more and to conform us more into your image, Lord. So Lord, just thank you. Thank you so much for being you. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. We're really spoiled. Thank you, Lord. You're so good. We pray these things in your name. Amen.